Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 113, which sounds like it should be unlucky. It does sound like it should be unlucky, but it isn't. <laughs> well, let's hope so. We've got an hour or so of someone's time listening to this podcast to prove otherwise. Welcome to the show. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobet Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Thrillers. Crime. Suspense. And mysteries. Welcome to the show. And it's uh, lovely that we're going to be joined by Colin Harvey later in the show, who is uh, a fabulous author of things that you would not necessarily associate with being written. Indeed. That's a bit cryptic, I know. Well, I'll explain. Uh, He has written lots of things, but he works also pretty extensively in the video games industry, where a lot of writing is required. You think of writing a, a video game as actually being like a screenplay. Yes, yeah, so this, there are similarities with that, aren't there? Particularly in the fantasy genre, or indeed anything that involves character scenes. Yeah. And so he'll explain more, but uh, it is a very, uh, it's a growing market. It's a well-paid market as well. You might ears prick up across the podcast sphere mm-hmm. when they hear that. Uh, he's also teaches writing as well in this uh, fashion and has a great story to tell. It was a fascinating insight into a world that I'd never considered from the point of view of the writing craft. It certainly widened our horizons, didn't it? It so did. It's very valuable. Yeah, it really was. So, Colin, to, to speak to it uh, later. Um, listen, I wanted just before we get into the news, I wanted to follow up and just recommend if um, <laughs> my rant about the Gary Lineker situation and the BBC and the state of the BBC. Last week, pricked your interest. Actually, there were two articles in the Telegraph, Daily Telegraph in the UK, this week, written by uh, former members of the staff in John Simpson. Sorry, John Humphreys, I should say, former Today presenter and presenter of major national bulletins and also mastermind and a big old harumph. And, (laughs) of course, the other great grandee of harumphing, Jeremy Paxman, who is presenting currently his last season of University Challenge uh, Parkinson's. Uh, he no longer works full time for the BBC, and so has been sort of a, a freelance presenter. But both of them put the whole situation about how it's a really of the BBC's own making by allowing Gary Lineker to think that he's got the freedom to do what he damn well pleases, uh, and all of the implications that has on their policy of trying to be impartial, the management behind it, the effect on staff who have to abide by the rules. And the impact on those people who decided either to work last weekend or not. And uh, the abuse they got if they did work on social media. It's brilliant. Both articles really nail 
essentially, in a much more intelligent, as you'd expect, and erudite way, but also more considered way, what I was trying to say. Brilliant. So check those <laughs> out. Sorry about that. That's I just all thought, I have to say. Yeah. I thought it was worth a follow-up. No, what? absolutely, because you you were saying something that we hadn't at that point heard uh, or read about in 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 the media, and mm. so it, I think it sort of gives you a bit of validation, doesn't it, on what you were saying that the fact yeah, that I, I, two I feel, quite I feel, great voices were I saying. I feel a, a little bit vindicated, in the sense that yeah, a lot of the themes that I was talking about, which got lost in the noise, exactly got picked out, and yeah. and and really it is about the incredibly difficult line that everybody in that organization has to tread in terms of deciding where impartiality sits in fact paxman says look the best bbc managers are the ones that just leave you alone and don't get involved um but in the current climate you just can't do that because everyone's poking their noses in and accusing the bbc of all sorts of things but i will say this it's still unforgivable that um, you can pay some one person a certain amount of money that would have saved the BBC singers from extinction, which is what they've been told this week, that they're basically they're wrapped up in a couple of weeks' time or whatever it is, that the proms, they'll start the proms without the BBC singers. That is just it's, it's tragic. Yeah, and cuts to the orchestras across yeah, the piece. Yeah, tragic. I would like to say I haven't yet had my phone call from the BBC yeah. with the offer of... Well, miraculously, after we did the podcast on the Monday, uh, just to wrap up that story, basically the BBC sort of climbed down in a major way and said, we're going to launch a review to decide how to handle these things in the future. And in the meantime, Mr Lineker is coming back, at which point he didn't apologise at all. In fact, it was left to Alan Shearer to uh, apologise for the impact on other people and to the audience uh, when they did Match of the Day this week. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure you're going to get the call because everyone's back at work now. Look. I'm still waiting. It might come. You never it know. Maybe a comic relief edition. That would be appropriate, yeah. And you would love to raise money for the charities. I would. The you charities. Would. Charities. Look, uh, news is really thin on the ground in the publishing world at the moment, you know, of, of enough significance for us to really want to comment on it. Um, one or two little tidbits, but w w what should we talk about first? We were going to talk about our week as well. Yes. And what we've just been, uh, we've been to Exeter, but we'll talk about that. What, what stories have grabbed your attention? Well, I mean, the, the Nibbies, the shortlist of the Nibbies is dominated. But... That's the National Book Awards for those yes. who, uh, who so mentioned there's, there's, before. There's lots of prizes. There's also the Independent Publishing Guild. Um, award as well. I've seen a lot about that, but we're not going to talk about that today because um, the next big crime event coming up is Crime Fest, mm. and they've just revealed. Um, the sh uh, I think it's the, uh, the the shortlists for the debut award, which they do, um, sponsored by Specsavers, isn't it? And a friend of the podcast and a friend of the two of us is on that list. That's Graham Bartlett. Yeah. Graham, well done. With his book, Bad for Good. Yeah, Bad for Good, which was his debut, as you say. And his second one's, uh, I think, ready to come out now. Yes, it's uh, imminent, isn't it? I think... And he's going to be at Crime Fest sharing a panel with our very own Brian Price, uh, talking about the, um, the, social, the social elements of crime writing and um, impact on society. So that, uh, I, I, I'm sort of paraphrasing, so I apologise um, if that's completely the wrong sort of <laughs> emphasis, but that I, I, that's uh, what I picked up and gleaned. So congratulations to him. Who are the other nominees? Um, so for that particular prize, which is a Debbie crime novel, uh, we have a book called A Good Day to Die by Amen Alonji. Alonji? Probably Alonji, yeah. Um, we have The Maid by Nita Prose. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Ashes in the Snow by Oriana Ram- Ramuno. Um, it's Harper Collins, that one. We have a book called Kalman by Joachim B. Schmidt. Yeah. Dirt Town by Haley Scrivener. Yeah. Uh, the Siege by John Sutherland. Mm-hmm. And A Flicker in the Dark by Stacey Wing- uh, sorry, Willingham. So I don't actually know those other books. I mean, they're debut crime novels. No, I, 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 yeah, I'm not familiar with them. No, so Graham, obviously, because we know Graham and a lot of the people who've... Well, been... it's always an exciting to see people, you know, getting an opportunity like this. And I do hope that uh, Crimefest is, is being supported by some amazing names again. It's like a mini Harrogate yet again. Um, <laughs> some of the best names. Um, people that we met last year. Andrew Child is back. Yes, and I, I notice I think Lisa Jewell is going to be there. And yeah, and Janice Hallett is there too. Yeah, so we can we can try and get Janice we'll on the podcast finally get her again. on the podcast, which we've been meaning to do for ages. But we're planning to go. And I do believe, um, you know, again, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think that uh, at the end of the month is the point where the, the slightly cheaper tickets are available. And after that, it's full price. And that's quite a big leap, actually, um, for those who wish to go to Bristol and Crimefest. It's it's a really terrific event in terms of being, I think, in a sense, it is an easier thing to negotiate if you've not been to a, an event like this before than Harrogate. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the atmosphere, I don't know. It's, it's more collegiate. To, it's hard to put into words, isn't it? But it is a sort of a more relaxed atmosphere. I could quite happily sit on my own at Crime Fest, whereas Harrogate, I would have felt a bit strange sat on my yeah. own. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, so I could sit with a book and a cup mm-hmm. of coffee or a gin and tonic or whatever, and yeah. I'd be quite happy. Absolutely. Anything else that's caught your eye? Or should we move on to what we did this week? Um, news-wise, I don't think there was anything else, was there, really? Well, there is one thing, actually, yeah. And and, and this is... Um, I, look, I don't want to get into the habit of being regarded as someone who bashes Findaway Voices. Now, just to explain who Findaway Voices were and are. So, Findaway Voices, we've been using them for over two years now to publish all of our audiobooks. And when it started, the advantage, the main advantage was that it was one place you could put your audiobook and it would arrive in a growing and changing list of audio pla- audiobook platforms. And it averages around the 40 to 50 mark, 48 to 50 mark, I should say, um, and includes US library lending, which is actually quite a valuable area. But it also goes to Audible and to all the obvious places. Uh, so that was one advantage. Uh, another thing is that um, it kind of just broke out the sort of the, the, the sort of dominance of, of Audible, which in many ways is, is still problematic. I mean, the biggest problem is that you can't really market through Audible yet. Um, but that was all very good. And uh, the other thing is that you could be put forward for Chirp Deals, which is the book bub equivalent for audiobooks, which uh, puts your audiobook at course at discount rate but in front of thousands of potential listeners which again is a big advantage now we submit our audiobooks regularly for those deals and we've only had one out of the dozens i've applied for so um it does work if they let you through um now that was all very well but uh middle of the last summer yeah, in the uk spotify emerged and bought the company for about 250 million dollars i think it was And nothing really happened for a bit. That was the announcement. And that was it. 
And then, as you will remember, my ranting of three, four, maybe five weeks ago when we discovered that they had put a clause in, which had been there for some time, to be fair, which was at right at the back end of every contract, which allowed them to send then the narrators that appear through Findaway, their voices, to Apple, so that Apple's AI narration system could learn from those voices and potentially copy them without any recompense for the narrator or for the people who've paid for the production, people like ourselves, or indeed independent authors. And that really angered us, and me particularly. Uh, we have withdrawn our support of that and asked them to do to drop that. Then this week they announced that the, one of the things we have is a shop front on our website where you can buy the audiobooks at a discount rate, less than you would get it at Audible or indeed from any other platform. They're pulling that up as well. They're now saying that uh, by the, I think it was beginning of June, you will no longer be able to sell your books on a platform. Um, yeah. It has to go through Spotify. So yet again, um, another thing that made it attractive for us has gone. And it was just, that's it. We're pulling up the door, drawbridge. We're no longer doing this. You have to, you know, that's it. If you've got listeners who've been listening to and buying books from you direct from your website, they'll now have to access them with a special code through Spotify. It's kind of what we expected. And now there's a price war between Audible and Spotify for the book. So they're now all cutting prices, but no creator has the chance to actually tell either platform how they should be priced. They're just trying to rush to the bottom. So again, I'm afraid it's got to the point where we're going to have to look very seriously at pulling all the books and all the productions out of Findaway's grip. And any future ones, I don't know where we put them, is the truth. No. So that, was, that made me angry again this week. I mean, honestly, customer relations, now that Findaway is Findaway, who marketed themselves as the approachable and uh, you know, accessible company that was trying to beat the man is now owned by the Spotify man, so to speak. Different uh, man, then. Yeah, and is behaving just as objectionably as Audible can do mm. and Amazon do do. And we're just a small fry. That's how it feels. Um, it's not good. It's not good. Anyway, our week. We tried to put a more positive spin on the publishing scene. Uh, <laughs> we were invited by XD University, which, of course... Any listeners to our program will know that's where Rebecca and I both studied and we met and we snogged. Um, As he told everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I told the poor, appalled students, the young people <laughs> <laughs> uh, of our, our background. But we were invited to join um, uh, a, a sort of evening of uh, insights into publishing, both as a writer and as publishers, and also we did a CV clinic. We did, yeah, so we had to... Looked at of... people's CVs and gave <laughs> them advice. It was a really, really good event, actually. Um, very flattered to be asked, and I, I don't know about you, but I got so much positive energy from it, from seeing people who are, like we were 30-odd years ago, you know, um, desperate to know more yes so exactly that so they were sort of sponges for information and knowledge from us and that's the first time in a long time I've been in that experience of people looking up to you as wisdom so yeah. it took me a little while to get into that 
frame of mind. It did, yeah, you were you were you did feel an element of imposter syndrome. And, look, and you know, before we pretend that we went there and said we're, we're the big I am's, we did not. We said, look, it's a really tough industry a to get into, b to sustain, and um, you know, as yet, our proof of concept is that you know we're still going, but we haven't you know really had the level of of uh, sort of success we anticipated three years ago when we set up. And, no. And we, no. I think, so, you know, as we are on this podcast, we're honest about the challenges. and But we wanted to be encouraging and give them enthusiasm and to make them be- – anybody attending, whoever we encountered, go away feeling that it's not a closed world. Yes, it's competitive. Yes, lots tens of thousands of people want to join the industry every year. But they can do things in the time they've got while at university to put themselves in the very best position to get started. Absolutely. And I was actually very impressed, in, with, especially with the CVs I looked at, some of the things they've already done, mm. which I thought, you know, I didn't have quite so many opportunities when I was at university. Um, so mm. they're, they're in a good position. They're in a very strong position already. They, they are, yeah. And then on the Friday, um, taking full advantage of the fact we were there uh I offered to do a, uh, it was very ad hoc, uh, masterclass for the student radio station, which I used to run back in the 90s. And the current committee still presiding over what is now an unbelievably well-equipped, beautifully pointed set of studios compared to what we had, which was uh, a concrete shoebox with no natural light in it (laughs) whatsoever, unless the front door was open. Um, and the collective smells of of students for twenty five years. Um, it was <laughs> it was a grotty old hole. It was a proper shoe cupboard, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a shoe cupboard, and it was actually a crockery cupboard that was converted into a studio. But it was our home. It was our pride and joy. And but to see it now, um, t- you know, with facilities that would shame many many other radio stations, uh, was fantastic. And they were so kind to bring out tons and tons of memorabilia and documents and sort of records, not for the physical vinyls ones, but the the sort of the paper trail from my generation. Yeah, so things like minutes and meetings with you getting angry at people in the minutes. And, <laughs> was... But I don't know, did you notice that... Yeah. Did you read the, the one where it said, yeah, meeting open with Adrian grousing about such and such, brackets, big surprise. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was my but, well, someone had to do it. <laughs> but did you see your photo is still there? Yeah. On yeah. there's a windowsill and it had three yeah. three photos from various um ages of mm, um, me and my then big hair. And they hadn't realised that was you. So I said, you, that's him, he's just got a lot more hair there. Yeah, and I've got yeah, and no glasses. I didn't wear glasses <laughs> in those days. Um Yes, and I was a bit thinner. So yeah, I mean <laughs> It was it was really gratifying, and I think the sort of two days together. Um, yes, it was a break from the norm, uh, but it reminds you of how far we've come, both as publishers, as a company, but as people, in that time period, and it's paying a little bit back. And I can't wait to do it again. To be perfectly honest, no, I th- I said that two or three times to the um, alumni person who sort of oh, yeah i would like to give, give credit to liz johnson for organizing it and um and her team she's just joined the alumni team it's boy it's a big team um and they're doing a fantastic jobs so you know students at Exeter are very lucky it's a great university and it's such a wonderful location but it's just they have really raised their game in terms of supporting the students and making it making it you know basically i mean even to the extent that they've got a uh, a, a, what was it? An empathy dog. 
that comes yes. once a week to go so that the, pet, the the students don't feel isolated and they can pet the dog. Which is, I think, is a brilliant idea because <laughs> yeah, when I Ted was lovely when I started university, that was one of the things I missed the most was pets because you just don't have pets when you leave no, home. No, no, no. You're right. You're absolutely right. So credit to them. Thank you for your hospitality. Uh, we hope uh, our time and effort uh, paid off for you. And we look forward to hearing from the students who took our business cards um, and see if we can help. Well, I've had a lot more um, matches on LinkedIn. Is it? Oh matches? yeah, yeah. LinkedIn. That sounds like Tinder, crazy. doesn't it? But yeah, LinkedIn. Yeah. I've had lots of um, invites to connect, so that was good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. So that, you know, really energy. I come back with a lot of energy. Well, I feel I actually haven't channeled the energy, but I feel uplifted. So that, that's. We well, see. I feel a bit strange because I felt very uplifted on the day we came back, but two days later, I now feel quite flat. Yeah, well, I mean, well, we've got it. Both of us, you've got monumental challenges with the tons of stuff, and I have too. Both of us with our freelance side of things, um, big deadlines looming, and um, need to get our heads down. Uh, and, I, you know, I mean, on a sideline, my health is, is not good at the minute because they put me on a new drug and it doesn't work. It makes me feel absolutely horrific. So it's, you know, I feel like I've gone back to square one in many ways, uh, you know, in terms of my resilience but the extra trip was worth it let's, yeah let's get to the interview then so uh our guest this week on the hobcast book show is colin harvey and um it really hadn't occurred to me just how much writing goes into some of the big blockbuster titles that get released uh for stations like the playstation or platforms like the state playstation mm. Uh, Xbox and for the PC. I mean, these are productions that cost more than most of the big movies that get released nowadays. We're talking about investments for certain games of nearly half a billion dollars. It's incredible. But, well, they will generate four billion in revenue because they're guaranteed hits. And so part of that process is that it, it's a bit like making a movie, but with all the interactivity and options within the game. If you're living in a game world, this is what Colin does. He writes game worlds. He creates characters. He provides the screenplay from which the rest of the game will, the narrative of, of a game that will expand. Now, of course, that isn't necessarily going to be the case in, you know, field racing or something like that on Formula One or playing basketball, but there are still story elements within there. Yeah. We're talking about... Someone you know, has to create that. World, you know created worlds which you interact with and play with and particularly now in virtual reality and this is a niche that he has developed but uh, as he tells us you know his love of writing um and particularly thinking about how to tell stories in games started at a very early age oh it's a great story but you'll hear about that in the po- in the interview in the interview so let's speak to colin harvey colin harvey welcome to the hobcast book show Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak to you. And we've been really sort of broadening our church the last few weeks, haven't we, Rebecca, <laughs> in terms of the people we've been speaking to. We've talked to poets and all sorts. Oh, but, yes. Well, we, but, we'll speak to anyone, really, anyway. But Yeah, but no, it's all, it's all in, 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 you know... Uh, anyone who in, loves words. Exactly. In service of the word. Mm. Uh, and indeed, you know, you, you come at, you're coming at this, this game... From from a different angle to one we've we've spoken to anybody about before, because you work across many genres, um, many formats. I suppose is a, is a is a better way of putting yeah. it. And uh, I don't think we've ever spoken to anybody who is involved in the uh, games industry. 
which is fabulous. So take take us first of all into that and where writing and storytelling comes into it, because to many listeners, they'll be thinking, well, where's the story in XYZ, you know, uh, video game on a PlayStation? But you, you know, that's not the case. I mean, there's a lot of work goes into that element, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, um, I think for people who don't necessarily play games, yeah, you might kind of have an image of what games are like, which might be something like, I don't know, Tetris or sort of... That's me. Pack, are you describing game. me? <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, uh, and of course, those games, there are lots of games like that that have no real kind of interest in kind of storytelling. Um, and they're very popular and they're very, you know, beautifully kind of elegantly kind of designed. But um, there are increasingly, there are lots and lots of games um, which have some kind of storytelling kind of going on. Um, and increasingly, you know, they have budgets that are kind of like really quite comparable to kind of, you know, uh, Hollywood kind of budgets. And they attract, they attract the same sort of um, uh, talent that Hollywood attracts. So, you know, lots of quite famous kind of actors kind of crop up in, in kind of contemporary games. And, um, yeah, so, it, it, you know, if you, if you play sort of modern games of a certain kind like playstation games or kind of xbox games or pc games um lots of elements of it will look like a movie you know you feel like you are kind of playing a kind of movie um and that's you know uh, that's a big part of what a kind of game writer does or a narrative designer which is kind of related to kind of discipline um so my job my day job is to kind of write you know i write the screenplay for you know, it's a screenplay that looks like the kind of screenplay you would find in a movie um, for those bits of the game that are kind of the more linear kind of bits of the game that are kind of non-interactive. But there's also, of course, all the interactive stuff that you get in games as well. So that's where the more, perhaps the more kind of narrative design kind of element comes into it, where, you know, you can kind of explore an environment and kind of find, uh, you know, meet characters within that environment and talk to them and kind of find what we call collectibles, you know, kind of find artifacts. If it's a, I don't know, a sword and sorcery game, you might find a treasure and, you know, uh, you might find documents that you kind of read. So that's all part of it as well. Sort of like kind of creating this kind of, this interactive world that you then, you then explore. Um, so it's, 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 you know, I think there are lots of different kind of um, kinds of writing involved in kind of video game writing. So, as I say, there's kind of screenwriting. There's also uh, a lot of it. It's actually kind of audio. So it's kind of like radio, you know, because um, I have a background in kind of radio stuff. So that's that's always quite a useful kind of skill. Um, and audio can often kind of save save you if something's gone wrong elsewhere in the kind of construction of the game. You can kind of use it to kind of fill plot holes, which, uh, which I have done in the past. So, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, kind of multifaceted kind of kind of thing, really. I was just thinking it's like it's like a book but with different dimensions. So the similar skills to writing a book or a series, but you've got all these other dimensions of the visuals and the um the, the like you say, the characters and the, and the audio to for the plot holes. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I mean it's very similar skills around kind of world building, I think. You know, and again, like movies, you'd have or a TV series, we have a kind of story bible that you kind of create. Um, which of course, because you've got all these different disciplines as well like the art team, the animation team, um, production, and, and obviously the programmers, who then sometimes they need to kind of refer to, you know, all this stuff to kind of make sure what they're doing isn't contradicting what you're kind of doing on your side. Um, I mean, I guess a key kind of difference would say, um, 
cinema or television is that, um, a lot, in fact, lots of things that require a kind of script is that you tend to get what we call kind of parallel kind of development kind of happening. So whereas with a movie or a TV show, you write the script and then everything else kind of flows from the script. Yeah. Whereas in a game studio, you, you're often kind of working on the story at the same time that, say, the art team are kind of working on concepting kind of art or the programmers are kind of exploring new kind of um, new, new kind of technical things or the gameplay team are kind of working out, oh, yeah, we'd like to do this and this, you know. And it, and it is, um, so it's kind of different in that regard. And often because, because the script and the story is seen as being the, the softer sort of thing, the more malleable kind of thing, yes. you're liable to be the thing that has to change in order to accommodate, <laughs> you know, the fact that these guys over here want to do this, and you know, so... Um, yeah, so there are yeah lots of similarities, but then lots of differences to these other kind of like storytelling kind of media. Um, and if like me, you kind of work in these different media, it's really interesting then to kind of compare and contrast. Oh yeah, I can do that because this is this is I'm working on a short story, or I can do this because it's a comic um, and it's not interactive. But I can't do that with this game because it's interactive, and somebody's gonna you know they need to this this plot needs to go in three different directions at this point or what have you, you know. Of course, yes, you have to leave forks in the road where, you know, you give um, autonomy to the, the player to decide which direction you go in. And I presume that sometimes there'll be things that you've written that 90% of the population never see because they always go, go the they, other way. They go the other way. But yeah. Is it, there's those books I remember from my childhood, which were written like that, weren't they? If you want to do this, go to page this. And yes. Yeah. What, whatever happened to them? I think they've <laughs> they, been superseded choose, by games. <laughs> yeah. Choose your own adventure books. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're a big um big kind of influence. They kind of they're they kind of emerged in the kind of eighties and they've they they have a, a kind of strong relationship with exactly with what we kind of do in terms of games, particularly this that kind of branching kind of narrative which we're describing, where yeah, the game can go that way, that way, or that way. Um there's there's I mean, there's loads of challenges around writing that kind of stuff because if you um, if you have a narrative which starts to kind of branch and then it branches again and again and again, you know, quickly it kind of proliferates all these like different kind of like, yeah, completely. <laughs> so you have to kind of find kind of clever ways of kind of bringing it back around. And then, I mean, and that's that's just in the context of a book, but in the context of a um, a game, uh, as you suggest, it, it might be the case that you you know you you wouldn't necessarily see a particular kind of branch unless you played the game through again. So um, so there's always, again, and that's a kind of expensive activity is to kind of build lots of stuff that people don't necessarily kind of see. So there's always that kind of tension within kind of games, that kind of game, which is a very specific kind of kind of branching kind of game. Um, and then there are other games where you're, you're um, you know, you're more in a kind of exploratory kind of area and yes. you're finding things within that kind of environment, which are less... So they, they, it depends how you define branching, but they're kind of, you know, so it might be that you go over here and you find something. So it's branching in that regard. But, um, you know, you're not building what we call big kind of cutscenes. The cutscenes no. are the kind of the movie kind of elements of the game, effectively, which are the expensive bits. Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I, mean, I, I haven't played games consistently for a very long time. And, in, and many, you know, when I have, and this is like three years or so. But, well, but, the hospital game. No, but what I'm saying is that, that that I gravitated towards the games that were a little bit more sort of um, scenario based, and you know, here's your level. This is what you've got to try and solve. Off you go and do it. Something uh, you know simpler. 
Uh, and I do remember, but I do remember my, I had the, I think I had the first three iterations of PlayStation and those cutscenes where the actors came in and, you know, they pretended to be mafia bosses and all that sort of stuff was all clearly all written and it had to be then acted and then digitized and all that sort of thing. Nowadays, of course, you've got these open world games where you can just go and interact with everything in it. And I'm thinking of the last time I played anything like that was Grand Theft Auto V, that kind of era, uh, or anything by Rockstar, um, which, again, needs writing. But also you've got to have an algorithm there that can create free speech depending on each scenario. It's quite extraordinary. I was going to say, it must be really complicated. Yeah, it is. It is. really is. Yes, it can get very kind of complicated. So that's, you know, as I say, the kind of screenplay kind of bits of it are kind of, you know, they're in a way they're the much more kind of static things. And once you've gone and um, done motion capture, you know, when you kind of put the kind of sensors around the actors and you kind of caught all that kind of stuff, it's very expensive to kind of change that generally. So that stuff tends to be fairly set once you've kind of got it and you have more flexibility kind of changing that stuff in the kind of the in the game world itself the kind of the environment that you're able to kind of explore as i say with kind of things like kind of audio and stuff and um and i think i mean the the comparison i always use for people who don't really play games a lot is um from an author's well for the writer's point of view it's a bit like um a musical i think would be a good kind of analogy so if you remember the kind of the musical has you know, you have a bit of story and then everyone yep. breaks into song <laughs> and then you, you go back into into the narrative and then, and, can, and so on and so on. Um, and so games are a bit like that because you have, yeah, you'll have like a bit of narrative, then you have gameplay, then you have another bit of narrative, another bit of gameplay. And the trick, a bit like um, uh, I think the better kind of musicals is that you're trying to advance the plot at the same time within that, within those interactive kind of sections, just as you would be within a song. When you're when you're writing for these for the, for the in this way, and they're doing the motion capture stuff, are you involved? Are you are you on set there, ready to make any alterations? Because often with uh, you know TV drama, um, or if you've got a particularly big star in a Hollywood movie who then demands a rewrite because he doesn't want to say a certain line, and you have to go in and, and is that what happens to you, to you guys, or is it pretty much set in stone once you've you've laid down those those words? Um, yes, certainly the last big game that I kind of worked on, I was there in the motion capture studio. Um, and, you know, in fact, we did lots of rehearsals and we kind of modified the script as we kind of went to kind of, because we wanted to be quite a kind of naturalistic kind of mm. kind of performance. And in fact, so for instance, we had a, a whole sequence set in a kind of modern art gallery. Um, <laughs> and the idea, it's a virtual reality game. So the idea was you could go around and you kind of, play around with the kind of the art the art the exhibits basically and destroy the i don't know what it was the commentary on the kind of modern art was but you could destroy the kind of the different kind of the exhibits no, you know that thing of kind of pulling out things and watching the whole thing kind of collapse around mm-hmm. you and um, especially in vr which is quite kind of amazing but because we wanted the kind of the actors to be kind of quite kind of spontaneous then there was a lot of kind of freedom in terms of the script in terms of what we were doing but of course, the script needed to be completely kind of accurate. So my role in that case was kind of like we're kind of iterating with the actors, and then we're kind of modifying the script so that we we have a kind of a, a genuine kind of authentic kind of script when we get back to the back to the studio, so we know exactly what we have. You know, it does actually kind of ma- all kind of match up and stuff. Um, so yeah, it can it can depend on it, yeah, it depends on the kind of project again a lot, but. Um, 
yeah, certainly the last two projects I've been I've been there in in terms of you know the motion motion capture stuff, which in a way is the most that's the real kind of magical kind of stuff because you're watching mm. the actors as I said with all these kind of sensors all over them, but then you're watching a kind of puppet version of them on the screen. Um, and a kind of basic version of the the kind of set, which also has kind of sensors around it. And then when you get back to the studio, or, or perhaps kind of in parallel, the art team are kind of building what the set will kind of look like. And then the whole thing is kind of kind of comes together. So yeah. that that stuff is I find completely kind of kind of fascinating, really, because it's and what's really fascinating as well, especially with kind of the VR stuff we were doing, was that the actors. Because often games are kind of drawing on film; they're very heavily influenced by cinema. But actually, in that case, the actors would say this is much more like doing theatre, because you'd have, in terms of doing a sequence, they'd have a whole sequence they would record, we would capture, um, and it wasn't possible to kind of edit that sequence no. once you captured it. So it's like, a, cause it's, so it's not like a movie in that regard. It's much more like there's this big block of data. So that means the actors have to kind of know their lines and go through the lines in one in one you know they have to do it all the way through so in that regard it's like being live on a in a stage play because there's no cutting to kind of because it's vr so it's a consistent kind of perspective so there's no no ability to kind of cut to kind of close-ups and and etc yeah know? none of that artifice and the the edit you can't we'll yeah. fix it in the edit you can't do that you can't go to a cutaway yeah. or anything like that yeah, yeah. i mean in other kind of, in other traditional cut scenes you can but in that yes. kind of context you couldn't it's painstakingly long process producing a game of the these this caliber and, and, and size so is that one of the i mean i don't know if that's a frustration to you because you know you might work on something and it might take x amount of time for it to then come to fruition i mean you know and and see your work in in because i you know i get the impression you know these games can take what three years to develop so um i don't know if that's uh you know my layman's um misapprehension but that must be is that a frustration to you? Um, well, it's kind of, it's, it's that thing of kind of watching it kind of come together. So you kind of, as I say, you kind of like, you record the kind of like, if you like the spine of the thing, which is, you know, the screen screenplay kind of element of it. And then it's, it's a process of kind of like iterating within the, within, this is where the narrative design side comes in. So when you're in the kind of the gameplay kind of elements, you kind of, you, you'll, you'll, um, in there kind of experimenting and see what kind of works so this that the same game that i mentioned with the art exhibit i was inside the, what we call the game engine and kind of like positioning the dialogue and trying to work mm-hmm. out where which bit of dialogue goes where you know and, and and making sure oh this will have the kind of maximum i or i need i need the player to kind of know this plot point here so i've got to position this kind of piece of dialogue there so at that point, that's where it kind of, I would say, stops. you stop being a writer and you become the narrative designer kind of side yeah. of things, really. Um, but yeah, it's a sort of, yeah, two or three, uh, all the games I've worked on. But then you get these much bigger um, games that can take, you know. Um, uh, so you mentioned Rockstar, I think yeah. Red Dead Redemption, which was their big kind of um, Western game that came out a few years ago. I think that took um, something like six years, I think. Yes. And then... Um, other games, you know, even longer, like the next Grand Theft Auto has been in development a long time. And, um, you know, so so these are becoming really lot, quite long, even compared to movies, they're becoming, you know, a, a really kind of long development process. And more expensive. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we're talking about £300 million budgets and, and all that sort of thing, aren't we, for those sort of scale of games? 
yeah i mean i've not worked on anything quite that scale but the you know, i have worked on things with with budgets that that I, I can't reveal but you know you think oh my god i'll probably never get to work on anything this big again you know and it's it is comparable to kind of um to to a kind of small scale kind of feature film kind of budget you know mm. what sort of personal skills are what well, i was interpersonal skills i should use the word does it take to work in a production of this scale with so many moving parts um i mean admittedly you know like any technical project the fewer moving the parts the better in terms of from the developer's point of view but nonetheless there's an awful lot of people collaborating here is you have that, to be a good people person yeah that's quite <laughs> is that is that difficult to sort of find your your niche and your voice in in that sort of environment i think um i mean the obvious thing i guess i mean this is probably true of like most things right you can't be a prima donna with your mm. with anything you know you kind of um and you've really got to know when to kind of fight, which battles to kind of fight and when. Um, and also because things are often kind of, you're up against kind of particular kind of deadlines and you're kind of trying to kind of line, line different kind of things up, different disciplines are kind of trying to kind of line things up. So, um, uh, so, so yeah, you know, you, as I say, you've got to choose which, which kind of battle you, you're going to fight really. Um, my previous boss sort of described me as unflappable, um, <laughs> which... Which, but which really surprised me because I, I may give that impression, but actually, absolutely You're like, inside. yeah, it's like, ah, <laughs> yeah, what's going wrong? Sounds like me, that? actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it's a slight, yeah, sort of. But it is, and it is that ability to kind of be interested in what other people's, what these other disciplines are kind of saying, and also, I guess, an awareness that it's fundamentally a game. It's not, you know, in the end, it's going to be driven by the gameplay. The needs of the gameplay will will. Um, even if it's a very narrative-driven game, you know it, that that will kind of take kind of priority. I would say because it's you know you're not making a movie, you're not making a, you know you're not writing a novel. It's um, and, and it's yeah clearly very extremely collaborative kind of enterprise really. Um, uh, go on. Well, I, I have a question, a bit of a personal question because I've got three boys, right? And if they if they were in here now, they would say. <gasps> That's my dream job. So I want to know, how did you get into this? Because, you know, they might. <laughs> yeah, I wish my kids would. I've got two teenagers. And like, I wish they'd be a bit more kind of, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would never be cool. Um, unless they secretly think I'm cool, they don't tell me. Um, <laughs> that's possible, because it would be I, uncool mm. to look like they think you're cool. <laughs> yeah. um, I, so... Uh, I kind of came at it kind of multiple kind of ways, really. So I always, so if we go right back, right. So when I was age 11, I won a, a computer in a national competition to design a house of the future. So this was 1983. Yeah. And it was to design a house of the future, the far flung year of the year 2000. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the, the, the school entered it. So that each class was kind of, you know, so each week you mm-hmm. do a different kind of room in the house, like in you know, the lounge and, I had a kind of robotic butler and a cat called Moggy and stuff. And um it and it um uh and so we ended up with a computer and, and we had no idea in my household what what this thing was. Um this kind of like it was like a kind of it was an Atari eight hundred and it was kind of I was like a say, yeah, what was it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a beast. Uh, yeah, it was a beast. It was kind of like a typewriter and a radiator kind of crossbred and produced this kind of gigantic <laughs> thing. Yes. And um and uh 
and we had a so it's plugged into the DER. We had a rental TV and it plugged into the DER rental TV in the corner of the room. And my dad would sort of sit in the corner of the room, kind of smoking, because it was that era. He'd be smoking, <laughs> kind of chain smoking away. So this kind of bug of smoke kind of. Um, and I would sit, and because the disk drive they gave me didn't work. So I'd type things in from like the manual or from yeah. computer game magazines and like produce, say, the Stars and Stripes or a, what alleged <laughs> to be a kind of jazz score. And um, because uh, it, it, I couldn't save it. So it was kind of a very performative kind of thing because I could gather around the family and say, look, I've done this. And we could all gather around and look. But, you know, increasingly I discovered that, you know, I'm not a programmer by any means, but I, and I was interested in those choose your own adventure books and in creative writing and stuff. And I thought, oh, yeah, what does kind of interactivity kind of do? You know, and started playing around with Atari Basic and creating these, you know, what we call text adventures, which is really yes, the kind remember, of video yeah. game version of, of those choose your own adventure books. So, um, and things like people might remember The Hobbit. There was a version of The Hobbit, which was very popular, which actually had um, some, some pictures and you know, illustrations and stuff that was primarily driven by the text. And there was... Uh, there was a company called Infocom, actually, which was very big, that created lots of these, which were mm. really kind of like interactive books, I really, I, I guess, you know, sort of interactive fiction um, from that era. And anyway, that, so that, that really sort of struck a chord with me back then. And I, I realised that um, you, could, um, you could give say, a player the choice to say, if you said to them, do you want to pick up a sword? Um, and they say, yes or no if they say yes then you just say sword equals zero in the kind of program uh, sorry sword equals one in the program um and then when they meet the dragon later on if they've got the sword they can use the sword to kill the dragon but if they don't if they decided not to pick up the sword and sword equals zero then they don't have the dragon you know it goes you know it goes the kind of wrong way really um so it was really, I mean, a very kind of simple thing but i thought oh, well that's really interesting because that's like what you do in creative writing you know when you set up an, an idea and then you pay it off kind of later on um so even quite early on that was quite kind of fascinating to me that 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 you could do that um and anyway so i kind of carried on kind of writing um and my my career was really powered by that that was the first competition that i kind of um that i won and my whole career is kind of powered by these competitions so i um uh i after i graduated from university so i did a kind of media production kind of degree mm. um i won a um uh, a, 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 I was the BBC Young Radio Critic of the Year, 1993, um, which sounds impressive, but they only ever ran it once. So I'm the only, oh, you're the <laughs> I'm only, the only BBC the inaugural. Yeah. <laughs> but through that, I was able to kind of get work with The Guardian and stuff. And then later on, I did, I entered a, a, a short fiction, original fiction competition for SFX magazine. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, and I won that, and then that, that was able, that kind of propelled another bit of my kind of career, and led to me kind of doing license, kind of tie-in kind of work. So um, so I had these different kind of strands, really, kind of kind of going. Um, and then, um, uh, but I ended up kind of teaching. I was doing kind of um, university kind of teaching, um, and I ended up doing a kind of PhD. And again, I kind of came back to that idea of. of and this is a big thing within the medium. This is kind of what I've been kind of talking about already, really, which is about that interrelationship between storytelling and kind of play within yeah. video games. So I did a PhD in that kind of area. And then meanwhile, I was, you know, still pursuing the kind of creative writing stuff. And eventually I was able to, um, I got a job 
actually it's Sony doing, this is about 20 years ago, doing kind of pitching kind of ideas, story concepts, really. Um, and then it kind of went from there, really. So, so I had this, these different kind of strands and it all kind of came together. And meanwhile, obviously in journalism as well. So that's, this is kind of what I would recommend to people who want to get, you know, into this, into this kind of field, really, is to kind of come at it the, these kind of multiple kind of ways. Eventually, it's like a that? game. It's like a game. Well, well yeah, you, get, but, but, like you win a competition yeah. and you go that way. The yeah. portfolio of income <laughs> yeah. streams and, and, and skills, yeah. but they all they all inter yeah. interrelate, yeah, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. And um, uh, and it was yeah. So it was just really driven by that, really, and trying to kind of um, uh, just a fascination for kind of thinking about this stuff in lots of different ways. So I'm really interested in obviously the creativity of it, but also how you anal analyze these things and particularly in this kind of new medium, which I find a really kind of exciting kind of medium. And I would encourage people listening to this, you know, that if they haven't, if they haven't looked at games and, do, do, you know, do have a look at games and because it might not be what you kind of think it is. You might be surprised mm. at what contemporary games, like things like The Last of Us or Ghost of Tsushima or um, um, God of War, you know, there's, there's a whole, yeah, we're a real golden age of these narrative-driven kind of games. But also there's bigger kind of what we call gas games, which are games as a service. There's things like Fortnite and Destiny and Apex <laughs> Legends. You know, there's loads of these things and loads of opportunities. Um, and I think crucially as well, it's the kind of one of the few kind of forms of writing that you can come across that's actually not too badly paid. It's kind of, yeah. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, most writing, as we know, is not terrifically well paid and you're doing it more for the love of doing it. But with this, you know, if you, if, if you know what you're doing and you're kind of good at it, then you can, you know, you can make a living from it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, what's your, because um, I know you're, you, we're going to talk about um, your, your, a project that you're, you're working on uh, with Unbound, um, which is, uh, for people who don't know, this is a way of, essentially it's, it's crowdsourcing, uh, you know, a, a book project. But um, I, I, I got the impression from the title, at least, you know, you're, you're taking a position on where things have got to in terms of this side of, of the artistic development. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, it's that I think, uh, uh, you know, the skills um, involved in game storytelling seem to be to be filtering across to kind of other media. Yeah. Um, if you look at... Um, say like the Mission Impossible movies and you look at how they're constructed, it seems to me there's a lot of similarities between how, how they write those movies and how we would create a kind of video game. So that's to me is really kind of interesting. And then there's obviously all the stuff around kind of de-aging of actors. So you think about Harrison Ford and the, <laughs> the new 80-year-old yeah, guy, you know, in the new Indiana Jones movie. Um, you know, there's, there's loads of aspects in which this stuff is... is changing and kind of feeding each other um and you know and social media as well i mean the book is partly kind of you know kind of um informed by that as well in terms of like there's lots of storytelling that's going on all the time in terms of twitter and facebook and and you know um uh, tiktok and, and stuff mm -hmm. um and as we know though that can be that can be uh i would say kind of dangerous thing as well as a kind of like a positive thing so actually the need to kind of understand what's happening with this stuff becomes more and more crucial. I think it's really critical to kind of understand um, 
what's happening in the worlds of gaming, what's happening in social media, what's happening with, with um, you know, deep fake stuff, you know, all this kind of stuff. Because yeah. it's not going to go away. It's only going to kind of intensify. So it's really important that everybody kind of, we all kind of understand when we're watching a story that's made up and when we're watching a story that's true and what's, you know, all those yeah. sorts of things really. These things feel really quite, quite live kind of discussions really. Because there's when, so much blending now, isn't there? There is. I mean, I was going to ask where yeah. you see the uh, position on AI, for instance, which has suddenly, be, you know, reached that next level of consciousness collectively, where it is now really influencing the creative arts. And uh, some companies, and this is something that affects me as a narrator, we've talked about this at length on the program, um, but, you know, they are replacing human voices by synthesizing. Yeah, we're not real. We're AI. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the, the performance is getting synthesized. Um, I guess where it's leading is that where the human element really is going to remain is the origination of ideas that resonate with other humans. Um, but do you sense that AI is catching up in that in that way? Yeah, it still feels... Um important to me the creator still feels the human creator feels utterly vital to to this you know no matter i mean this is the thing isn't it that kind of it would seem that ai ai can kind of can mimic um convincingly mimic um what human creators can produce but i don't know um and, and this might maybe seem incredibly kind of old-fashioned and actually sort of like much more of a kind of romantic kind of kind of frame of mind. And hopefully it's not naive, but I would hope that actually the 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 authenticity that kind of like because there's a big discussions around authenticity, right? Quite rightly, mm. I would say. And actually, the authenticity of the human experience cannot be emulated by a machine, and I don't think ever would be. Um, so that's what I would kind of hope but there are you know there are very yeah as you're kind of alluding to there's very kind of immediate kind of issues around this stuff really in terms of um uh you know potentially in games or, or in in fact in other media as well you can get to the point where you could bring an actor in get the actor to record a kind of a data set of lines and then generate new dialogue very convincing sounding new dialogue off the back of those that small set of lines that they've they've you know they've um already recorded so yeah and and then you know but previously you would get the actor back in and you get them to do more lines whereas then you know so so you, it would involve lots of different you know it has implications to kind of copyright and kind of like people's kind of like their ownership over their over their voice as well as their likeness and all these things will need to be kind of reconsidered um so i think you know i guess that's what where this kind of heads really is into the kind of realms of kind of legis legislation really to try and make sure that that you know um uh that people's people's creativity is being kind of protected i think mm. and that's, I, obviously that's not just a thing around writing that's a thing around all of these kind of creative kind of activities which are kind of impacted by this you know indeed and, and you know to give you an example just recently uh most recent appearance of darth vader uh, was was AI generated using James Earl Jones's uh, recordings from the seventies onwards, and putting it into a computer and giving us some dialogue lines. And he, because he's now in his nineties, he's not in a position to sound the same as he did. Um, and so that's yeah. what they did. And they de-aged Mark Hamill's voice 
in a similar fashion um, yeah. for the recent uh, episodes of The Mandalorian. So it, this is happening. This is happening. Yeah. Good time. But that's but you know just for, <laughs> just to finish. I mean that is costing Disney a lot of money to do, and obviously they needed it for a certain project. But it will soon be just common currency, I think. I was just going to say I can't imagine Darth Vader being a ninety-year-old little old man. Yeah, he's still you know he's, <laughs> he's a man of presence. <laughs> it's always Dave Prowse in my head, you know. Well, the yeah, original, there you go. The, he the was the physical yeah. version, and the, the vocal yeah, yeah. version was James Earl Jones, as you as you rightly say. And in fact, he was only in the studio for two hours for the original Star Wars. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, believe it or not. Uh, well, there um, you go. Um, so, looking forward in terms of storytelling, where do you think it's it's going? Where where, where does a writer position themselves? Um, hmm. Well, it's it's it is that thing around. Um, uh, we have this kind of dread word in kind of like media studies where we talk about kind of convergence and it, but it does feel like that really kind of like there'll be more and more. Um, I mean, I've written around kind of transmedia storytelling, which is kind of like telling, um, telling uh, kind of connected stories in a, kind of, in a unified kind of story world. Star Wars is a really good example of a kind of contemporary one. The Marvel cinematic universe would be another one. So these are things which, you know, they might originate in one medium like comics and then they end up in movies and then they spread to games. And and it's different to adaptation. Adaptation might be part of it. So it's not just retelling a story in a different medium. It's telling new stories in different media. Yeah. Um, so uh, so in that regard, I would I would be very positive about it because I would say, actually, that, that like I said earlier, I think there are lots of opportunities kind of emerging if you are kind of fleet of foot and if you're not scared by this stuff. And that's the thing I would really encourage people to be not scared by it because actually it's just a case of finding out and kind of learning about this and actually that journey is just really i think anyway really kind of quite kind of exciting um to kind of find out find out about kind of new media and, and kind of think well you know like i was saying earlier you can't i can't do this in this medium but i can do it in this medium and this is the strength and it's always about them playing to whatever the strength particular kind of strength of the medium is um so yeah so you've got transmedia storytelling and you've got things like um uh I think kind of Netflix kind of pushing into kind of interactive television with things like kind of Bandersnatch, if anybody kind of played that, uh, which was that Charlie Brooker sort of interactive drama sort mm. of thing, which was, um, you know, years ago when I first started teaching kind of interactive fiction, that would have been, would have been my dream to be able to show off stuff like that. Um, and it's just, you know, and it, but it is just a, you know, there are legacies, you know, the, the, this stuff has kind of been predicted, you know, cinema and theater and, and these different media have been experimenting with things like interactivity and stuff for kind of donkey's years and it's you know it's just sort of a different way of doing it really so um uh yeah i think i think that's the thing i would sort of recommend to kind of to to new writers really it's just just to kind of engage with the stuff if you're kind of interested in it yeah stay fleet of yeah, foot absolutely. yeah okay well in terms of being fleet of foot this is the ultimate challenge um well he always picks it up and it really isn't <laughs> well it, it is it is time this is the, without question i mean you know we've had a fantastic conversation but this is the highlight of the interview which of course is rebecca's random question okay my random questions always come to me randomly i don't put too much thought into them at all but we were watching tennis last night on the on uh where was it amazon yeah on amazon on the phone and it was in california yeah and um, they were talking about the fact it's hot all the time or warm all the time and comparing it to the British weather. 
And I thought, I wouldn't like to live where it's hot all the time. And then my question came to me. Okay, you, you're given a choice. You either live in the desert or you live on the North Pole, where it's one extreme or the other extreme. What would you choose and why? I would definitely choose the North Pole, I think. I'm not somebody who does very well in kind of hot kind of environments. I did live in Australia for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, um, but interestingly, so when we moved to kind of Sydney, um, we didn't stay in Sydney very long. We moved up to a place called the Blue Mountains, which was, yeah, has a kind of such a, yeah, kind of really bit about a lot cooler kind of, kind of, yeah, it's much more benevolent climate there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, in fact, it rained for the first sort of month we were there and it snowed <laughs> when we were there and stuff. So it wasn't at all your kind of neighbors, kind of crocodile Dundee kind of, <laughs> kind of stereotype of what about you know life in australia was going to be like um and uh and then you know because there's a giant hole in the kind of the ozone layer so it's kind of like constantly having to kind of put kind of like sunblock on and stuff and sunblock on the kids and stuff so um so yeah fairly unambiguously i would go for the cold environment and um yeah i think uh you know you can make snowmen and stuff right yeah and you can play you can play computer games to keep you warm. Well, I know your answer, Rebecca, would always be sn- snow related. Yeah, I don't think I'd like to live in a really no, hot. No, I don't do, I don't deal with yeah. hot climates too well, and I, I have experienced sort of time in in desert regions, um, brief pockets of time. Well, Devon was quite covering, hot this summer when covering, we were on holiday. Covering football matches in 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 Africa, but. Yeah, I, I think I'm leaning the way towards the North Pole as well. Mm. There's also it's the, the, the there, then. I mean, if nothing else, as, as you know, it's all getting warmer anyway. So you know, it's not going to be too bad. Uh, yeah, you, you could get quite cozy in your igloo, can't you? And so yeah, and also in Australia, I was going to say, there's the thing about kind of giant creatures like huntsman spiders that are kind of that uh, big. And, and, you don't you get know, those and... in the North Pole, do you? No, no, no. No, I mean, like, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I didn't spend a lot of time in Australia a few months, but uh, yeah, uh, one of my jobs was was uh, cleaning toilets in a in a in a I backpacker. I thought you were going to say snake Camps- catcher. <laughs> no, but I, I have told the story on the program before. Another job I had for just a week because I couldn't hack it was working in a in a uh, roadhouse in Northern Territory, very very old one. Um, so proper, you know, tin roof, uh, wooden shack kind of thing. Been around for for decades and around the perimeter of this bar were the hats the akubra hats you know the ones the felt hats that everyone knows about australians not with corks but yeah um bushman's hats and all of the, you know so these were put up there when someone died and then underneath it was an inscription which said who the guy was and how they died and about 50 percent were snake bites Oh, wow. uh, another <laughs> another sort of twenty percent. There were usually holes in the hats, and that was gunshots. Um, <laughs> uh, but the the old lady who who ran this place, she was an English woman who'd lived there for years. She was extraordinary. She was in her eighties, and um, if a snake appeared in the bar, quick as a quick as a flash, she came out with a shovel and, and would decapitate a king brown. Or yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. She 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 was fearless totally fearless but i was terrified by the place i mean you know they came up through the floorboards and all sorts right so. north pole it is yeah then. north pole yeah. it is all around so yeah sorry yeah sorry no no not yeah, all. Yeah. carry on no i was gonna say i had to move a hun- I'm, I'm quite um uh, quite an arachnophobe and i had to kind of move a 
Huntsman's spider out of my daughter's locker at, at the, uh, and it was literally that big. Yeah. And hun- Huntsman are not poisonous, but they look like something out of Alien, you know, so they are, they are yeah. petrifying. And I had to use a, a flower pot to kind of move it because it was, you know, we normally use a glass. With yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> here, it's just a glass, isn't it? Well, I mean, yeah. you know, your middle son is terrified if a daddy long legs gets in his room, then we've got trouble, haven't we? Well, he'll send me a message on, on Messenger, though, saying, can you come and get a spider out of my bathroom, please? Yeah. I know. Well, this is a bizarre thing, because our kids live there with us, and like, the, they're both terrified of really tiny, tiny spiders. You know, I thought, yeah. surely we used to live with these giant things. Yeah, and, and red backs <laughs> and funnel webs and all that sort uh, of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty evil stuff. Right. Well, well, uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. We we thank you so much, and and um, you know, it really has sort of, I think, encouraged listeners to look in a different direction with their writing, um, of course, and 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 to appreciate more what goes into making uh, a, a broader form of entertainment. But in terms of finding you online and and what you do, where should they look? Um, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, and yeah, and you can find the book. I'll just plug the book again, shouldn't I? The book is on Unbound, if, if anyone's interested in kind of supporting it. So um, uh, yeah, it would be really great. And you get your name in the back of the book. And <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a quite... And, and the again, title is for when they're looking for the project? It, it's called The Hero Never Dies. And um, I won't explain why, but, you know, if you read the blurb, you'll discover why that is. Fantastic. Brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and we wish you all success with every project and every aspect of your writing career. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Colin Harvey. And I think, you know, Colin, like so many of our recent guests, I just can in fact, all of our guests, let's be honest, I would love to hear more from. But, you know, there there is a certain window of time that the podcast offers you. And I felt I could have talked again for several hours more yes we'd like to take him down the pub and have a pint really yeah <laughs> yeah we don't do that enough with our guests but uh, let's hope we can catch it's up it's difficult but with yeah. a few of them uh, over the year to come uh wonderful thank you so much on our guest next week our guest next week is somebody called sarah dugdale she's another one of the uh, people who responded to my uh, now very famous new year's day tweet asking for guests astonishing isn't it how, yeah. many, how many we got yeah. so um we don't know a great deal about sarah yet but um well, looking forward wh- to finding out yes <laughs> and you will find out all about sarah next week as well yeah so looking forward to speaking to sarah dugdale that's terrific um so we're back to the we really are looking at the grindstone this week in a major way because you have um, significant deadlines to meet for the Writers and Artists Yearbook. Um, yes, I mean, that's that's going to go on for another month or so. But we do have an exciting, well, two exciting events that we're going to separately this week. Mm. So um, book I worked on um, and you've worked on as well. Oh, yeah. Um, right. As Arch Publishing Services called, the, uh, called Transformational Selling. And that is actually having its official launch this week. Now, the um, two writers, Bryn and Steve. Yep, have got Bryn two, Thompson and Steve Lowndes. They've got two launches, one in Mayfair, which sounds very sort of uh, lovely and posh. <laughs> You're going to that one. Yeah. And I'm going to the rough it, <laughs> rough it up one in uh, Wilmslow. Uh, well, Wilmslow's hardly rough. <laughs> it's 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 in the it's it's the uh, it's right in the epicenter of the um 
the Cheshire footballer oh, belt. Will I have to go on a sunbed or something? Do you think? Yeah, get you my need nails to, done. You need to be orange for that. I, I don't have to do that in, for, for the Mayfair one. So, in fact, I don't even know what May- Mayfair is somewhere on Monopoly board. I mean, what is Mayfair? Mayfair is the most upmarket and most expensive part of London, uh, bordered by uh, Pall Mall and Oxford Street and uh, Piccadilly and St James's Park. So, um, you know, I spent a bit of time there. In fact, one of my books that I'm writing is based in Mayfair. Uh, it's the home of various hotels that many people would have heard of, like the Dorchester, uh, the Grosvenor House hotels are on Pall Mall. So how do they manage to Park. get? I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? I, well, it's just a pub up upper room. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't think it's, you know, <laughs> it's not It's not a three-star Michelin place. It's where, you know, even, even as recently, I was in Mayfair a few weeks ago when we were in London and, and part of my um, overnight sleeping machine that I have for my sleep apnea broke. And uh, there was a bloke in a, in a basement um, selling the bits um, in Mayfair. Or you can go and see him and say, I didn't sleep that well the first night I wore your new mask. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it should have worked for me, but it, it blows a gale down me, so I get cold. So it didn't quite work out. But anyway, look, um, I'll go to the Mayfair one. I'm going to the Wilmslow one. And uh, so that's really exciting. I've completely, honestly forgotten about that. That was this week. <laughs> Um, which puts more, more pressure on my studio time to uh, to finish my th- on the fourth of my five legionary books that I'm narrating at the moment. So back to battling goths and yes. Hun riders. Uh, so I look forward to that. And I ought to mow the lawn on a sunny day if we have one. Yeah, <laughs> desperately needs it, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, the rest of our neighbours have, have ventured out, but then they've got petrol mowers and you've got an electric, which doesn't cut quite yeah, as well. Yeah, so. somebody promised to... I did, I know. It's one of those jobs that I said I'd do. But I went to the dump yesterday with the broken bookcase. You did go to the dump with the broken bookcase. You know, that's something. That is something. And, uh, of course, um, I ought to sort of pay tribute. To, I didn't get a chance to see her today, but it's her birthday very soon, so I'm going to go and see my mum before very long. And it's Mother's Day today. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to say, and you were made a beautiful breakfast by your youngest son, Toby. It, yeah. Uh, but then he left you to do washing up. <laughs> well, no, he did do some, and uh, it wasn't him that left you to do the washing up so much. But, That's middle son, yes. But then he he did get cross for me, because he came out of his room and he said, I was going to do the washing up, and you've done it. Yeah, right. So, yeah. But, yeah, so Toby, um, he's been planning my Mother's Day breakfast for about two weeks now, and he's done a little practice as well. And <laughs> It was very sweet, and uh, I came down halfway through and put the extractor fan on because the place was filling with smoke. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure it, it looked tasty. So what it was was a bagel cut in half, toasted, and one half was um, a sort of onion scrambled egg ensemble, mm-hmm. and the other half was an entire tin of uh, chopped tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And then cheese and barbecue sauce on top. So it was delicious. There was just a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. But I, mean, I ate as much as I could and it tasted really good. He's very good at scrambled egg. That he boy. is. He is. He is indeed. And I had a phone call from our eldest child as well this morning. Oh, it's nice. Know, they're covered, covered all bases. Um, but yeah, as I said, I've got to see my mum uh, in the near future. I, mean, I doubt she was aware that it was Mothering Sunday anyway. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm thinking of you, mum. Uh, but anyway, that's it for uh, another week. Um, so join us again on the Hopcast Book Show. We are at the moment in the process of planning some significant changes, not to the podcast content, but how we present it to the world. I'll say that. 
That's all he'll say. Yeah, it's um, yeah. We, we're going to we're going to catch up with the rest of our rivals and and do some different things. But we're also going to deepen the opportunities for um, you know information, make it easier for people to discover the podcast. So that's a bit of work that I'm working on at the moment on on the side, alongside all the other things that we do here at Hobet Books. If you want to find out more about us as a company, then uh, please look at our website, which is www.hobet.net, where for a short period, at least, you can buy audiobooks <laughs> direct. Uh, it's the cheapest, yes. cheapest way to do it outside of it's Audible. It's a quick, get them now. Get them now before uh, Spotify bring down the uh, the shop front. Thank you very much. And um, uh, for the rest of it, well, we've got tons of good news and blogs and details about our authors and our books. And uh, subscribe to us and you'll get our Sunday newsletter, which is an amazing piece of writing every week. It is, because <laughs> I'm doing it this week. <gasps> No, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. It it's is, a highlight of my Sunday. It is Rebecca's baby, and uh, she does it brilliantly. So, thank you so much for joining us. My, I've been Adrian Hobart, and I've been Rebecca Collins. And it remains for us to well, uh, wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobek Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit